Hi, Geekscapists. Welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. And um, I would set your alarms because it is a brand new school year. So get your number two pencils ready. We are taking a pop quiz today. Just kidding, but it is going to be educational because we're sitting down with Jay Wirtz from Monroe Publications. And he's going to be telling us all about his educational comic books. That does not mean that it is going to be a boring episode. I've been through, I've flipped through these comics. They're actually pretty entertaining. And um, I want to tell you guys about it because comics are kind of something that I've been neglecting the last couple episodes of Geekscape. And we're going to get into them really heavy right now because in two weeks is Stan Lee's LA Comic Con. So we want to see you guys there. Geekscape has a booth. At 3 p.m. on the 28th, we're doing a Geekscape Live. I'm just going to go ahead and announce one of my guests right now. It's Jerry Dugan, who's currently writing Guardians of the Galaxy in Deadpool. So Marvel writer Jerry Dugan is going to be my uh, guest on Geekscape Live, which uh, you subscribers will be able to hear in two episodes if you haven't, uh, if you're not in L.A. But if you're in L.A. or even close to L.A., come down to the convention center, hang out at the Geekscape booth, and we're going to be doing all sorts of fun stuff like... Uh-oh, our sponsor, Loot Crate, the box of mystery in danger will be at the booth. So a lot of the stuff that Loot Crate sends us, Loot Crate is one of our sponsors, and when they send us uh, stuff, it usually goes into the box of mystery in danger, and that shows up at our booth. You geekscapists walk by, and um, you can pick something out of the box. Sometimes it's something cool, something sometimes it's just something dangerous. I promise I may or may not put mousetraps in the box this time around, but you just got to dig in there and see what you find. Um, while we're talking about Loot Crate, go to LootCrate.com slash Geekscape and uh, use the promo code Geekscape for a uh, discount on your subscription. They've got all sorts of cool boxes and they're thinking of new, they have like new boxes all the time and I really have to email them because I'm listening to Geekscape games, Shane's back, and uh, I, he said that there's a D&D box and I really should be researching this stuff, but if there's a D&D box, I definitely want to get my hands on it because um, we're avid Dungeons and Dragons players. It's Geekscape. So if this is your first Geekscape, surprise, we just said a lot of geeky stuff, but you're the guy who downloaded and listened to the episode, um, or, or gal. And uh, yeah, we've been here for a long time, and we're glad that you're here. So um, Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> that was a lot of ramble, wasn't it? Well, I learned something I didn't know the <laughs> L.A. Comic-Con was coming up in two weeks. It is. It's coming up in two weeks. Um, we're dear friends of theirs, and it might be a cool place to um, to come and promote your books. We were at the WonderCom in Anaheim, and that, that was wild earlier this year. So yeah. uh, I can imagine this is uh, WonderCom Plus. It's. I think um, it, it's, it's really different because San Diego Comic-Con runs WonderCon. So it does feel like San Diego Mini. Um, the things that, that WonderCon misses that San Diego has is that downtown um, San Diego feel. And WonderCon just doesn't have it. And I don't, I don't know what to do about it because the, the convention center is actually bigger than San Diego's. And it's, and it's uh, as far as a convention goes, it's a great place for a convention. But just the atmosphere of being downtown San Diego, the entire city takes part in it. And oftentimes, because getting tickets to San Diego is really hard, I just tell people to go down to downtown San Diego and hang out because it's so immersive. And that sort of immersive uh, part of it, WonderCon doesn't quite have. Stanley's LA Comic Con is a different. It has a. It just has a different tone than than San Diego Comic Con. It's newer. It's 
exciting. A lot of the guests are random. Like they just announced The Rock and Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> and and I'm excited about Pee Wee Herman and I'm excited about The Rock. Um, and we have the, the Geekscape Live going on. Um, we have on Sunday our good friend Cooper Barnes who's um, on Nickelodeon is doing his uh, his you know uh, Henry Danger panel with the, the cast of Henry Danger if you guys are Nickelodeon fans. Uh, or if your kids are Nickelodeon fans, that's going to be a lot of fun. I think I'm moderating that one. <laughs> the emails have been exchanged. Um, but also there's a lot of parties. And that's one thing at WonderCon. Like, the parties seem like they're organized by guests in their hotel room. <laughs> but uh, but WonderCon doesn't really have many places to throw a party. And here, you got LA Live. you got all that stuff going on downtown. And the party Saturday night is a lot of fun. They've got, uh, I think the Black Eyed Peas are performing is the big secret that is no longer a secret. They announced it last week. Um, so I would welcome you to come down because it's wild in a different sense is how I would say it. Um, yeah, come on down. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. And, there, and, and the other thing is the focus is very much also, again, on comics. The main stage isn't just shared by Hollywood. It's, it's not just Hollywood. Does that make sense? Like when you go to San Diego, when you go to WonderCon... TV and film seem to take up a lot of what the focus is, especially in those big panels. And at LA Comic Con, there is, I mean, Stanley's convention, there's still very much a focus on comic books. So you'll see a main stage that might have a big star on it from TV and film, but then it'll be interspersed with comic book writers or comic book artists. And, uh, and it seems to take just as big of, uh, of a role as the the studio stuff which is really refreshing especially because it's a comic book convention at the end of the day this is a medium that needs focus it needs attention and uh it's also the medium that like i love the most so it's it's a really great festival uh it's really good convention it feels like a festival but it's a really great convention um so let's talk um you, this Monroe publications, like I, I honestly didn't know about it until uh, Sandro, who's a really, I think Sandro's really cool, and he very cool. He hooked me up with uh, with our good friend Oliver Ridge, who you Geekscapists will recognize from, I think an episode back in May or June, and he was talking about, um, you know, his independent comics and bringing them to studios. Uh, Jay's different. What Jay's doing is you're taking historical. Uh, stories like World War II and you've actually focused on one of my favorite stories that I think would make an incredible film um, and you're putting them in comic book format and like recently I, t- I mentioned t- I think a week, two weeks ago about Ken Burns' Vietnam and I'm fascinated about the way that we are recording history because there's a, I, think it's, I think it's liquid I think it's a fluid Thing. So here you are, and you are taking history, and you're taking almost a textbook approach to it, but you're putting it into a comic book. Am I, am I off? I uh, know you're right on. You're right on as far as what I'm doing, because I actually started in film and television, uh-huh. and uh, my first big uh, documentary was uh, Smithsonian's Great Battles of the Civil War. I always like to say that I was uh, sort of the Avis to Ken Burns Hertz. We came out about the same time. 
He was on PBS. I was on the Learning Channel. We didn't have quite the audience, but it was a uh, it was a different approach, different approach than what he took. Certainly, mm-hmm. uh, we use live reenactments, and I've always been involved with uh, people who are close to history, who whether hobbyists or professionals. Um, it's been a love of mine throughout my career in the film and television business, and uh, what I didn't realize I never thought of myself as a print writer. Uh, last furthest thing from my mind was being a print writer. That's, that that sound Geekscape this is me <laughs> opening a comic book bag. So <laughs> if you hear that popping sound, it's yeah. not because we're hatching eggs all of a sudden. <laughs> there yeah. are no aliens in the studio. We but. hermetically sealed those for your <laughs> entertainment. Well, you know, you're like this guy may be a stickler for comic book quality. So <laughs> you've done well. Thank you. But uh, yeah, then I, out of that, I I started trans. I got an offer and started transcending and writing. History books, nonfiction type uh, books, but pro, uh, but in a prose form, not no photos, no no, no well photos. We had yeah. photos. But not, I'm not text- an academic. These are almost textbook, though. Um, I like to say they're more uh, kind of uh, textbook adjacent because we do do a lot of photographs. I've always been a, a stickler for maps. I like good, uh, colorful, well explained maps. And again, I'm a communicator more than a than an academic, so I've always tried to reach out and do things that were uh, in a communicative form for to try to reach different audiences. I did two books um, un- under contract to a publisher where actually there are pull-out documents, historic documents that you pull out. They have reprinted them. Uh, I go and take pictures of the originals from the 16th, 17th, 1800s, and Whoa. they turn them into... Uh, facsimiles and and they fit in the little slots in the books that would get me excited as a student to have almost because you know having like these inserts that are almost um puzzle like exactly that that uh i just remember textbooks in school as being so dry and also looking back fairly cursory it wasn't until i read a um narrative nonfiction uh book about benjamin franklin that i actually embraced it because uh, it had that prose sense ability to it. it. It felt like prose. It was narrative nonfiction. And it wasn't as dry as just the textbooks. And I th- and it felt more immersive to me. It felt like I was being told a story rather than just being told facts I would have to remember. And you're telling me that you included, like, maps and <laughs> these kind of recreate... I mean, it feels like getting the uh, bonus edition to a video game where it comes with, like, a coin and it comes with, like... You know, a cloth tabletop thing that you can have. That sounds almost like a Dungeons and Dragons packet than anything else. And that could be really cool to a student. Yeah, exactly. And I think because of things like Dungeons and Dragons, um, where you had uh, clever publishers looking at ways to uh, attract people with unique packaging and bonus items and so on, that uh, this this sort of thing came out. And I, as I say, I'm a communicator first. Uh, so I've always tried to look for the uh, the edge to try to reach uh, a broader audience and uh, keep the information interesting and narrative. So I uh, did a, a series of uh, books with interviews of veterans of World War II. I've interviewed over 600 veterans myself. Oh. And I uh, started thinking, well, this is great, but again, a situation being uh, money so tight in schools and libraries changing their outlook from physical books to digital – uh, how how can I reach out and get the new, more visually oriented uh, readers of today? So came up with the idea, 
And it's not a new idea. As you know, nothing really great ever is. It's always been done before. But go back and do nonfiction-type uh, comic books, graphic mm-hmm. histories in comic book form. Um, and we actually have in this, uh, we have a running series of a, a fictional narrative based on history, World War II in this case, but fictional characters and, and it's a running narrative that goes through episodes, goes through the different comic books. So, again, a little little uh, homage to uh, Watchmen and other you know great uh, uh, graphic novels. And I'm trying to serialize it, again, get it in the hands, sort of a, a bonus package for you know, younger readers that might uh, be interested in that, but also kind of take a look at the real facts uh, as presented in uh, a graphic form about uh, some of these great events that we know of, of World War II history, but we don't know the rest of the story. And I try to delve into that as uh, best I can get good artistic input and uh, came up with these, uh, which we're now uh, into the third and fourth uh, issues of the series. And so the first, these are the first two, right? They are. Um, And you, because you don't, you don't number them, which is just like, I don't see why you would number them because they're one-offs, right? If you want to pick up the Pearl Harbor one, it's about Pearl Harbor. And the events leading to Pearl Harbor, if you want to pick up the ones about Bataan, they're in the the Pacific uh, War, you just you would pick that one up, and when I saw that you had done a a book on Batan, it's the 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 title. Listen to this. They called this is the title Geekscapist, and it feels like uh, one of those nineteen forties or fifties war books. You know, like a like a bridge too far and all that stuff. It's like they called themselves the Battling Bastards of Batan. Like that is the name of the book, and the this uh, <clears throat> this cover is like. Ex- it just looks explosive. It looks like it does remind me of like uh, Garth Ennis is a writer who's written. You know, he wrote Preacher, Geekscapist. You recognize Preacher, and uh, he and uh, the late Steve Dillon, who I can't even believe Steve Dillon's gone, but he drew Preacher and also drew Garth Ennis's Punisher run. Um, Garth Ennis did a whole series of war books, and they're. I mean, I loved reading them because they would have the settings of you know, Northern Africa or Germany or occupied France. And he would, he would just do these war books that were just really, really great. And, uh, it reminded me of these old war movies. And it seems like when I saw this cover, not only did I, did it remind me of some of that? I think that the story of Batan is one of the, um, biggest unfilmed, uh, stories. And, um, I think I may have said it on the show before, but, just as a filmmaker myself, being like, oh my God, like the Bataan Death March was one of those events in the World War II that was for almost disappeared into history. If we hadn't had, had one of those POWs escape and tell the story, one of these really, really violent episodes would have been lost in time. Um, can you talk on that? Uh, I mean, is it in the comic? Oh, absolutely. Like, um, this is, I mean, it, Geekscape is like that. The, the yeah. Bataan Death March, just Google that and tell me yeah. that that's not a horrific uh, yeah. event. Absolutely. We end, we end with the Death March and the Surrender. But um, what this is more about mm-hmm. is really what happened between the attack that happened simultaneously or a few hours later than Pearl Harbor uh, in the Philippines because it was our major base our major possession overseas what so, happened from we'll then to it. the end yeah we'll, uh-huh. we'll, we'll talk about it so so the u.s had obviously pearl harbor and pearl harbor has been pretty well documented what i didn't know that i picked up reading the comic is 
that U.S.-Japanese relations were really good uh, coming out of, or, or f- were fairly good coming out of World War One. And in the comic, they had a trade agreement, and they were pretty active trade partners. And then came the the complication between the Japanese relationship with China that started to change everything. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, you're all, you're correct. Um, the Japanese who were not a big participant in World War One, but they 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 got a lot of, of goods. Um, by that I mean they took a lot of over a lot of German possessions, so they they got a lot of benefit out of it. Out of World War One. Out of World War One. How? I mean, um, being on the well, opposite side of the globe. Yeah. How, how does that happen? Well, it's interesting because, of course, the uh, if uh, people reach back a little bit further, remember 1853. Um, or if you've seen Pacific Overtures, a musical, or anything like that, you know that Japan was still very much a, a feudal um, society up until the mid-19th century. I'm sure there are plenty of comic books that you know, articulate that, that yeah. sort of feeling. And you have movies like The Last Samurai, where, exactly. where Another Tom one, Cruise yeah. goes, and, sure. and, and even though he's a Civil War Survive, you know, a civil war guy. He he goes over there and becomes a samurai. Yeah, Shogun and all that. You know, sure, it's, it's, Shogun. It's been it's been. Uh, well, no, that's a different one. Last yeah, samurai, no, Shogun. Yeah, were, last samurai. They're all good. Shogun was the. Yeah. Was that Richard uh-huh. Harris? I was Richard Chamberlain. Richard you know, Chamberlain. The, my bad. The, uh, the miniseries, the famous miniseries <laughs> actor of, uh, of the seventies. You know, totally. He was in everything. <laughs> totally. Richard Chamberlain was in everything. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, once they sort of once the door was cracked. To the mm-hmm. West, uh, they they adapted very quickly, and even by the turn of the century, in other words, the beginning of the twentieth century, they had already defeated Russia in a, pretty handily in a in a naval battle. They had taken over Korea in nineteen ten, so they were definitely feeling their way in, into the into the world. When World War One came around, even though they were on the other side, but they uh, they made an agreement with the Allies. They didn't contribute much other than just say we'll keep an eye on these German possessions out in the Pacific. And then they rewarded them afterwards. Well, that uh, was part of what their expansion plan was anyway. They really wanted to bring Asia under one roof um, and exploit. They didn't, they didn't advertise this, but they, ex- they wanted to basically exploit the populations and the resources of, of places like of China, right. of Southeast Asia, of the islands, the Pacific, and so on. So they were becoming increasingly... Um, aggressive and uh, very brazen in what they did. Uh, so the United States, they were an important training part of the United States before the war, but that deteriorated very rapidly. Uh, but how do they how do they profit off of the events of World War One in Germany, and specifically? How did they profit off of that? They specifically uh, took what were called uh, awarded by the League of Nations. They were called mandates. Mm-hmm. In other words, they were given certain islands. Um, that uh, had uh, been German possessions. And they were supposed to go into the islands and sort of just guard them and kind of upgrade the native people. They didn't. They went in and they built military installations. Wow. These are the same islands that we had to fight tooth and nail in the Pacific War to advance and to to the ultimate Allied victory. So they had a head start by taking over these uh, islands they were awarded by the League of Nations as part of the treaty and, and building them up militarily as part of their expansion. And then in, in A, how, I mean, first off, how is, that not, how is that activity not monitored? And B, 
um, this is, Germany acquired these islands in the same way that France acquired such a great foothold in that region in the first place. I mean, this is all just colonialism. Colonialism, absolutely. Same as they had in Africa, but they also, of course, the Dutch, the Germans, the French, the Spanish mm-hmm. exploited uh, the islands of the Pacific and Southeast Asia as well. Um, and why were the officials asleep at the switch? Very good question. First of all, Europe immediately... After the signing of the treaty, the ink wasn't dry, became t- turmoil again between the communists, the fascists, the other elements. Right. They were busy with that. The United States, because of the damage that World War I did to our population and, and our depression. economy, yeah. Uh, yeah, became very isolationist. The depression, it simply was nobody was watching the store. The Japanese kind of escaped all the turmoil of, the, of what was going on in Europe. They weren't as hard hit by the... Uh, the depression, so they had a chance to really use the 1930s to increase their uh, military, particularly the navy, but also the army. And uh, they moved in, of course, in 1931. They moved into China and in, uh, Manchuria uh, pop, uh, province, and they took that over. And they just continued because they had a they had this idea they were superior to every other Asian culture, and that they were the uh, the uh, anointed masters, and they were just going to bring all these people un- under, again, under one roof, as they called it, in, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, co-East Asia prosperity, prosperity sphere. And, and that's what they did. And, and was this because of a specific, specific leader? I mean, were there bad eggs, or was this, was this a cultural uh, movement? Does that make sense? Like, Absolutely. It was, it was cultural. Uh, remember, they did come from a feudal culture. They were mm-hmm. less than 100 years removed from the warlords uh, basically being in command. Although they did have, of course, the the emperor continued. He was always a deity. But the emperor was not really, let's say, the, the biggest power um, when it came to uh, certainly a, a, any Japanese foreign policy. They had a very militaristic culture that grew out of this warlord feudal culture that they mm-hmm. had. Which was just about acquiring... Real estate, real estate, and and uh, and the uh, the material assets. Because of course, Japan being a small island, they didn't have enough steel. They didn't have enough oil. That's why we had a trade agreement with them for oil. Uh, they didn't have a lot enough uh, the raw materials. But they had a great plan. They had a they had a good design. They and they had a rather uh, consolidated power source. They did have to run everything by the emperor. But uh, you know, the emperor. Um, uh, Hirohito, who was in power in the 30s and 40s, was not that strong on his own. So he tended to, he asked questions, but he tended to ultimately go along with what the uh, the military strength was, the power of the uh, of the government then, and, and he tended to, to agree with, with what their policies were. And so they start setting up these installations. They know that they're strengthening themselves in the Pacific Islands. Um what then led to the tensions with the United States? Because, again, they are partners at one point. Right. And then sooner or later, Japan's going to have to deal with China. What well, was a domino effect? We were um, – we and, and the European powers, mostly the colonial powers in the area that were paying attention, uh, were increasingly concerned about how Japan was uh, you know, forcing more and more military investment into China. Uh, there was a 1937 incident called the Panay incident where they bombed accidentally a U.S. gunboat because we had a, a small military force in China, as did the British and, and the French. Um, and was China 
okay with that? Those military forces uh, being present? I mean, these are foreign forces. Yeah, are... well, Mao Zedong had something to say about it. But other than that, right. yeah, the, the, national, the Chinese nationalists were okay with, I think, the colonial development as, as it occurred uh, up to that time. Because um, we would do things like promise them eventual independence, as, as we did in the Philippines, of course. But we, we were not the major power there either. I think Britain was, was a larger power. But we, we did have a presence. Then when things became increasingly... Uh, was obviously that Japan intended to take over all of China, was becoming increasingly aggressive. Then in, in July of 1941, uh, we instituted a series of embargoes, cut off their oil supply, which they desperately needed from us. Because at that time, the Indonesia, what is now Indonesia, was controlled by the Dutch, and, and they were not selling the Japanese the oil. So it became a, ser- a domino effect of, of economic... Uh, uh, economic uh, consequences mm-hmm. that in then these, led to the uh, tension. In these part of the in these parts of the country are are asking the United States for help. They're saying, "Hey, like, wake up to what's what Japan is doing." Where you know the Philippines, et cetera, are sitting there and say, "Hey, like the U.S. We know that you're involved and uh, you're about to get involved in another big skirmish, but um, Japan's kind of kicking us around right now, and someone has to deal with these guys." Right. Well, of course, Britain had problems of its own, as sure. did the French and Dutch, because Germany had already invaded everything but the uh, uh, the British Isles. So sure. they were quite concerned there. They were concerned about uh, the Pacific and, and, and Asia, but they were their hands were kind of tied because of what was going on in Europe at the time. Of course, Philippines was our possession anyway. We, we controlled everything that happened. So we were definitely anticipating that there was – with the breakdown of the economic and diplomatic uh, side, that there was a, a good chance of military. That's why MacArthur was appointed to command the forces there, and we started a, a build-up there. Uh, the most concerned were those in the immediate area, Australia and New Zealand, even though they were part of the British Empire, but they had uh, autonomy, and uh, they were very concerned about what was developing in Japan. China was more... Uh, it didn't have a – it was Mao, uh, Mao, as I mentioned before. There was Shanghai Shek. They were fighting each other. They didn't have a really uh, cohesive uh, answer to, to the Japanese invasion. So uh, it was going to be – depend on one of the larger powers. So China was in turmoil at the time. It was in turmoil totally. It was, it was going to be up to one of the larger powers, whether it was Britain or France or the United States or some combination, uh, to uh, oppose the Japanese expansion. Then, of course, the Japanese – partly because of what was going on with uh, the Soviet Union, the Japanese suddenly decided to you know, jump into the sack with Germany and Italy. And that also, that certainly uh, increased tensions, made their diplomatic overtures to the United States, oh, we want peace, we don't want a conflict, made them much more hollow because, in fact, by that time, they were already planning to war against the United States. That's uh, so, uh, so China, because of the, uh, or Japan, because of the proximity to Russia, it was like, hey, we're not going up against Russia. That's it's, as soon, we, soon as we Germany, don't want, we don't want Russia <laughs> yeah. investing into China, yeah. et cetera, yeah. in establishing a, a, a militaristic foothold there to, yeah. that'll keep us out. Exactly. Japan got stung pretty badly in, in uh, 37 through 39 by the USSR and, and uh, Manchurian, uh, war on the Manchurian front. As soon as Germany invaded, Soviet Union and Japan got really got the assurance. Well, they're busy. Yeah, they're they're, they're not going to come after us. They'll fight they, on two fronts. They, they felt have... a lot more footloose and fancy free at that point to do what they wanted. 
Wow. So they basically tear through. I mean, the the Pearl Harbor was, was there. Was there a specific letter? Was there a, a specific agreement between Germany and Japan that led to Pearl Harbor, or was it more of an initiative on the Japanese side? That was an initi- initiative on the Japanese side. Um, to the extent of what secret communication Germany had about the invasion, and they didn't know any of the specifics, they would have concurred uh, that it would have it would have behooved uh, all the powers of the what's called the Axis, the Axis yeah. uh, to have the United States taken their attention taken off the European war, because of course we were not in the European war; but we were supplying it heavily. So therefore, um, it was an initiative drawn up uh, the Pearl Harbor portion. Uh, was drawn up by Admiral Yamamoto, head of the combined fleet. His idea was that we needed to strike the United States hard and fast while we have the ability to do so because once we wake, in his words, the sleeping tiger, we will not win this war. He wanted a fast strike that would take the United States, uh, force him to the negotiating table so Japan could basically go back to do Doing what it wanted to do. That yeah. was the initial concept. Now it was kind of like a "don't mess with the with the Pacific." It yeah. was basically saying, "Just let us do what we're going to do." Exactly. Um, that that doesn't make a lot of. I mean, just in hindsight, that <laughs> doesn't seem like something you could allow at any level. Well, does it make sense? Like it sure. would be, it would be like if I mean I don't want to equate the two, but um, if if North Korea for some reason just started. And they can't because China is such a big partner and protector of theirs. If they just started bursting their own, if they invaded South South Korea, if they if they started bursting their own um, uh, borders in order to acquire real estate, which which is what war is right. at some point, is it's a real estate war. Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. Well, again, looking at the perspective of what the situation was, you had Japan already on a war footing, already totally geared up with a massive army and navy at at this point that they had been building up through the 1930s. You had worldwide conflict already happening. You had the United States that was still, even at that time, uh, very isolationist, uh, despite what uh, uh, the president wanted, uh, President Roosevelt. The sentiment in the United States was very isolationist, uh, and we had not really sufficiently built up uh, what we needed to build up in order to oppose a potential Japanese attack in the West. And they knew that. The Japanese had spies all over the United States. So they were very aware of what our situation was. And again, in the, uh, the idea of Admiral Yamamoto, it was we have to strike them now while we have the strength because once they come to war, uh, there will be no stopping them. We have to get what we want now or we will never get it from the United States. He knew we were ultimately going to be the uh, the... <coughs> more dominant power but at that time we it was uh, i guess like a fighter you know kind of exposing his chin for that brief moment and if Mm. you don't take him down then and he's a stronger fighter then eventually he's going to pummel you in 12 rounds right um so what i thought was interesting and i hadn't heard about was everybody's basically pretty much i like to think geekscapists um (laughs) everybody has pretty much heard about pearl harbor but there were instances that surrounded pearl harbor like an attack on the pan am airplane that I thought were in the book, but um, were really of interest to me because there was a lot of human element to it. And that's one thing that sometimes you you veer away from the textbooks because, or the textbooks or just the nonfiction because they lack that human element to it. But um, there was actually a shooting on this Pan Am airplane um, that you document in the book, uh, which is pretty scary. Um, Can you talk about it a bit? 
Yeah, well, that um, that particular incident, as I describe, um, is fictional. Mm-hmm. But it was set up in a situation. Everything that uh, was set up there meant it it could have happened because uh, the Japanese were on the hunt for uh, Pan Am clippers that were still flying across the Pacific. And this did happen. And this did it, happen. It, it, it didn't this, happen that well, way. But, it, but this but specific it, story didn't happen. That specific story didn't happen. That's the, that's the graphic novel part of right. it. But it could have happened. And, and the situation, the evacuation of Guam, uh, the Army nurses in, uh, aboard and all of this, uh, the uh, uh, attack on Wake Island that's mentioned there, all those things happened. There were a lot of little things. It wasn't just Pearl Harbor. Japanese simultaneously attacked Hong Kong. They attacked Thailand. They attacked uh, Wake Island, Guam, Philippines. Uh, they were all over uh, on this one day. Uh, it was yeah. one day. One day of, uh, of drunken military power. And uh, they kind of really uh, changed the whole uh, face of history in, in doing that. But I always like to concentrate on human stories because human stories, it's history. I always like to say when people say, well, history, you know, boring what do we need to have for? Well, history is history is the human condition. Mm-hmm. It's where we have come from. We can't understand where we're going if we don't know where we came from. It's all it's all about humanity. History is the study of what humanity has done over a long period of time or a short period of time, and it's uh, it's the human stories that that make it the most fascinating. The decisions, the the stress, people, you know, the physical situations, everything that goes into these uh, uh, these things are, are things that really. Other comic books, uh, more traditional comic books, uh, Marvel and DC, they take that into account with their human characters. They you know, it obviously introduce other elements because you know superheroes yeah. have super superhero yeah, <laughs> as well as, as well as human characters. <laughs> but essentially, it's it's all about if if we don't have uh, dynamics between people. We probably don't have a good story, right? And that's what this all comes down and to. I, and I don't want to turn this. I mean, this is not an anti-Japan episode at all. We're we're talking about history, but um, um, I, what I wanted to say was, uh, it seems like at what point did it seems like the U.S. has become the only culture where this kind of storytelling isn't broadly acceptable. We will watch the Avengers movies. These are the biggest movies that we'll have in the theaters. Uh, are ones that were born in this medium. But the medium itself seems like if you go to Europe, you'll see adults reading this stuff. Especially if you go to Japan, you'll see um, adults reading comic books and manga and stuff like that. But in the U.S., it seems to be relegated to you know an adolescent male pastime, and I and I do think that that's changing, and we've seen that stuff changing, especially on like a, a Comic Con level. You see it much more accepted by uh, by women, and it is night and day. Uh, seeing people who come into a comic store when I used to work in a comic store back in the mid-90s to now, it's just a lot more diverse. That being said, there is uh, still a shrinking in publication forced by digital, forced by distribution realities. Um, I mean, what, what what's the move here? What, what can we do to, uh, A, uh, diversify comics so they're not just people in tights punching monsters um and also expand the readership so that they're not just seen or for the most part used by a male adolescent audience um i think you hit on all the key points there um and i i believe 
the change has you, you mentioned the keyword readership. And, and Jay, talking to your mic just a tiny bit more. You're a little far, far from Okay. Me. I love you, Jay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> sure, no problem. <laughs> um, I think I think uh, what it is is that um, you hit on the on the keyword of readership. But we need to embrace reading again uh, at at every level. We come a very visually oriented uh, society, of course, naturally because of the um, TV, the internet, and movies, which have been around longer, but with the the smartphone now visuals are in our face 24 7 so Mm -hmm. we have to get back to reading because reading is really comprehension understanding visuals don't usually make a whole lot of sense unless you have some perspective and reading is something that uh has to be encouraged and i i delineate between reading and browsing i think what most people do now is they browse they don't read they don't get in depth so probably the way to do it is to number one have Killer visuals. And as you know, there are many, many uh, talented artists in the world. Uh, people that are cr- creative, who are technically proficient, who are working in these mediums. So it's a matter, I think, of getting the dynamic and interesting visuals and a, and a great storyline and drawing people. Um, if you can't draw them away from the screen, whether it's the big screen or the small screen, uh, try to use that as a lever to add on. Now we publish in dig- digital. We're on iTunes and and uh, the well, other the well, other major Comicsology. Would that be yeah, one of the yeah. So you could find this stuff on maybe Amazon. Yeah, as well? sure. Yeah, so. exactly. But uh, beyond that, we want to make make the story and let's say uh, the art um, big enough and interesting enough that a lot of people aren't going to be satisfied just looking at it on a on a five inch phone. Right. That and maybe they'll want to see, wow, that that's a really detailed scene. Let's go in and look at it. And when you're doing with nonfiction, and we, we try to be very, very historically accurate. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I have time, I'll tell you a little uh, story about how sure. historically accurate you have to be. But to be able to go in a little bit and see the great visuals as they are, you have to go to print. Right. And I think that's, that's a thing that as we can create sort of a multimedia approach to everything – uh, and with the the anchor being great stories with great visuals that we can draw people back into you know the graphic print medium because you're right the rest of the world has never left it but we kind of left it after the it was it was popular obviously in the 1940s and uh, and beyond 50s to 60s it started uh, did we going just become, away did we become almost. a television culture because like we absolutely that, did. that is what we happened in the 50s did. and we just became boob tube. <laughs> We're, we're screen oriented. We've been screen oriented in every every size and shape of screen. But but people are sort of hypnotized by the by the screen image, and uh, we need to diversify that a little bit because you're not getting you're not getting the the whole story again. It, when you browse, you're just getting little bits. You're getting sound bites. You're getting little pieces. You're not getting the whole story. So, really, I think it's uh, a matter of uh, using uh, cross platform promotion. To right. get people well, away from the screen, exactly, and yeah. back a little bit into print. And graphics, graphic print is, is, is the, uh, I think, the best way to do it. And we see the rise of graphic novels, I think, being an indication that it's starting to come back here a bit. Yeah, I mean, you have these uh, 22, 24-page single issues. Do you think that this is something that, and you have th- issues three and four coming up, um, is this something that you think uh, would will get a little bit more of a foothold? Because there's a new initiative for you guys. 
do you think it, you'll start to see more success when it is collected as a graphic novel? When it is a little bit more of a when you see a spine on a on a on a shelf, like that's something that's really huge. Is seeing the spine on the shelf and saying, "Hey, wait, what's that? I'm going to pull that off and then take a look at the front cover and flip through it a bit." And probably that would be uh, the ultimate way to go. And you know, I foresee some uh, potential for historic novels uh, in, in a graphic novel and form. Once you have four issues, I mean, yeah. you guys might be able to. Well, we're do we're, of that. we're looking yeah. towards that idea. But I think we have to uh, get, first of all, tap into the to the existing readership of graphic novels and say, okay, here's an alternative to the fantasy that you're used to re- reading. Mm-hmm. And again, if we can make the stories, we can show real humankind having the same sort of uh, range of emotions, uh, a lot of action, a lot of color, the things that they're used to reading in, in uh, the graphic novels of Miller and others that – that they've read already, uh, we can try to get that and and uh, put a, a different slant on, on what something that's already gaining some popularity, and that's what we'd like to go with it. Yes, and honestly, like what's more interesting than history? Because um, I, I heard the story that the uh, that Trey Parker, Matt Stone at South Park are having trouble doing like Trump jokes because the things that they perceive Trump to do are funnier, more outlandish, and more outrageous than anything that they could have thought of in the first place. So places like Saturday Night Live are reactionary, whereas South Park that tries to uh, be outrageous beyond what is happening in history are finding themselves at a disadvantage to what is actually happening in, happening in history. And looking back at something like this, um, it, it sometimes is hard to imagine that something like the Death March of Bataan happened, that um, a culture that we we know today as you know Japan, we know the culture, and of course as we're as geeks, we thank them for our video games, we thank them for technology, we thank them for a lot of the manga and, co- and anime and comic books that we love, and we celebrate Japanese culture. It's a big part of what we do at conventions, and um, to think that all those years ago their military force would be capable of um, that level of uh, stuff. It, 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 you know, at one point, it's, it's, uh, it might, it's mind-boggling. But then you hear about the things that sometimes, you know, is happening uh, with U.S. troops, and you just have to start thinking of a, of, a, of, a, of the fact that it's not a binary problem. It's not good or evil. Uh, that it's this, that it's this human story that has some very dark places to it, um, but also has some places that are that are hopeful. Um, and again, what's more interesting than the truth, than something that happened? Do you, uh, let, let's, let's talk a bit about uh, that story you wanted to tell about being detail-oriented because, as I said earlier, in listening to an interview with Ken Burns, um, he was saying that history is fluid, that, that it's always up to interpretation. And I learned in school that history was basically reading through people's letters <laughs> like undocumented history for the most part you know pre 1800s and it was was just reading through people's letters to each other and that's how we started to get really get get history was was just trying to find some level of documentation now a lot is documented but a lot is documented through different voices i mean you just get on the documentation of online media and so much of it is coming from different uh corporate and personal viewpoints that everything just seems skewed and it's hard to actually find the truth. Um, 
how did you guys decide what where to draw the line in putting this together? Well, uh, again, I have to go back, I guess, to in the case of World War II is uh, hardcover books. And by the way, I will go back a little bit to what you said. And Japan is a changed culture. And, mm-hmm. and every culture goes through a certain number of changes over, over its uh, period of time. And, and so we can't equate anything uh, of Japanese post-war uh, attitudes with the kind of attitude that, that took us into World War II. Right, so because, thankfully I mean, for that. <laughs> because, I mean, not, not 10 years ago. I mean, what, 10, 15 years ago, we have Abu Ghraib. We have things like, like this. I mean, we have things that are seen as atrocities. And, and it's really tough because history will remember them as these things. Um, and, and they were. Uh, it's like we just can't get a we just can't figure it out as humanity can we? <laughs> uh, no, we can't. Uh, we can't. We can't figure out an alternative to violence and war. And that uh, there and again is uh, obviously that's a, a, a great potential for uh, telling the human story. It doesn't have to be the only one, but it seems to be the only uh, ultimate solution that has humanity has come up with so far. Um, it, it is uh, history is fluid. There are different interpretations, uh, and I think some there's there's some uh, degree of having to come up with that new unique theory these days to be to be special. And I get that, although I don't happen to subscribe to that. What we try to do is we try to really tell the truth based on the the best overall knowledge of all perspectives that we can get. And you've interviewed those 600 people. We've interviewed 600 uh, people, have uh, read and talked to and dealt with and been edited by many great historians who have really done the research. And so we we don't try to go off the edge and and create a theory that isn't there. Right. The things in those books are the things that are massively agreed upon on many sides. Exactly. Now, occasionally there will be um, a new idea, a new mm-hmm. uh, a new way to go. Uh, for instance, in my Native American book, um, at the time that it was came out about ten years ago, there was a a, a big push to uh, try to establish the uh, the entry of uh, peoples into North America, other than over the land bridge that they came by boat from Africa, from Europe, and so on. Cool. And that's interesting. And uh, you know, certainly with the uh, ability of uh, technology to create more uh, architectural um, models of uh, possibilities with the uh, state of archaeology um, and uh, things like that we, we can we can begin to look at alternative theories about about some things but it again it has to be well documented and it has to be uh, something that's it's legitimate I can't accept and have seen some situations where you know there's denial of things like Baton Death March and, and mm-hmm. other atrocities. When it's simply there's too much uh, personal, photographic and and documented evidence to, to say that that's not true. Like like Holocaust denier. Exactly. Like exactly. How, how does that exist? <laughs> you know, flat earthers. I was yeah. thinking of I was thinking of basketball star Kyrie Irving right. being a flat earther, and I was like, what would he say if you actually took Kyrie Irving up into a spaceship and you pointed it, you just made him look out the window at our Earth spinning? Yeah. How would he still think that it's flat? Take him for a zoom around the planet and ask him if it's still flat. Yeah, these are these are things that you can prove on Earth. It may be, you know, and I'm not a uh, anthropologist or a psychologist, but it may there may be a certain uh, uh, drive in certain individuals to try to hang on to uh, 
to ideas that are not necessarily, let's say, earthbound. And, you know, perhaps to some degree, that's that's the attraction in a lot of cases of, of fantasy, of fantasy writing is we're we're getting out beyond ourselves. We're not we're not limiting ourselves to the known. And I can appreciate that. Uh, but I can also say that there are a number of incredible stories that actually happen, that actually happen to people. And there's an incredible amount of hope if we can just find it and and emphasize it. So we don't necessarily have to go outward to find hope. I think we can find hope inwardly and outwardly as, in both cases. But uh, you know, some people, of course, go to the extremes and everything. And I don't happen to subscribe to that. I like to be more of a, of a centrist. But uh, but I do I do also look at at history as as a teacher, not just of of disaster and demise, but also of hope. And so, uh, tell me about the uh, fact checking. Tell, oh, me, tell okay. me about this. Well, it's fact checking, fact checking, and fact checking, and you think you have everything. But I took actually the Pearl Harbor issue mm-hmm. um, to a friend of mine, a veteran I interviewed. He's he's ninety four now, and, um, and he was there. He was a Pearl Harbor survivor. Uh, I was down in San Diego for the uh, December seventh uh, last year when we introduced it. But he was not there. He was over in Hawaii. He was one of the main. Uh, guest uh, guest of honor at the event at Pearl Harbor. So I had to wait a few months. And after it was out, I came back and said, "Stu, here's your here's your copy." The comic had already been out. It'd been okay. out a few months. Yeah, okay. about two months. I went down there and saw Stu. Hey, here is this is great. So he's he's looking at this is great. And he's flipping through it. He says, "Oh, he says look at this. You've got a uh, you've got a, a a dual fifty on the USS West Virginia. And that's a gun." A gun. That's an anti-aircraft gun, a dual, dual 50 caliber gun. Okay. At Pearl Harbor, we only had singles. You know what? He was absolutely right. I looked at that uh, several times, and it, you know, it, it didn't it didn't register. I'm so used to seeing, you know, it's a popular one we see in mm-hmm. uh, all the pictures, a dual dual or quad 50 caliber anti-aircraft guns, because sure. they came out very quickly in 1942. But at Pearl Harbor, they only had singles, and he picked right. up on that right away. So I always have to be careful about every little detail, artistic as well as narrative, to make sure that we're getting it right. Funny enough, uh, my father, I, he had a friend in Annapolis, and, our, and I, I hope he's still with us, but he was an engineer. He was part of the, the Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, I remember when my father drove me to college, from Austin to Philadelphia, he took time after moving me into my dorm, et cetera, to go visit his friend in Annapolis. And I had asked about his his friend, and he said that he was one of the first civilians on, uh, oh, I guess he, he may have been in the Army. He was one of the first people uh, on Pearl Harbor because those singles, uh, the the one of the biggest problems with what happened with Pearl Harbor was uh, the heat in the guns melted portions of the of the artillery. I mean, the artillery going through those was so fast trying to, those anti-aircraft guns, those singles, that portions of the of the barrels would melt. And now you don't have a gun to fight these <laughs> planes that are zooming around. And it was really a, a pretty horrific to realize that the guns were failing all around, which probably led to those duels and quads being uh, put together. And, and he may have been a part of that. But uh, I remember hearing that story. And again, war advances things so aggressively. But um, when your gun falls apart or melts and you're and there's dying all around you it's it's probably something that you have to <laughs> to correct pretty quickly and i just remember hearing about um the ceramics and the metal and this and that it was pretty fascinating 
Um, I would butcher it if I tried to give you guys an exact <laughs> relation right today, but um, but I, I, that always stuck with me. Yeah, well, they, uh, you're right. I mean, the the the, the impulse of mm-hmm. somebody who was able to grab a gun then, when you're seeing all these planes flying around, and you're in this desperate situation. Just you just put, push the trigger down and just hold it, and yeah, that would uh, definitely melt the barrels very quickly and. Uh, it was a reasonable impulse for the time, but it, it, it didn't make things any better for us. Another interesting thing that happened just after that was we had submarines going out, and submarine uh, crews were pretty good in the U.S. Navy, and they were a big part of the early Pacific War. But they'd fire torpedoes, and they'd fire torpedoes, and the po- torpedoes would keep going and and just they'd Miss fizzle and out. Keep going, oh, duds. fizzle out. They duds. Wow, they're duds. Because they had a bad triggering system. I ta- one of the guys interviewed was a guy who, who tested at Pearl Harbor, was part of the test team to, to test the new uh, system uh, to uh, trigger the torpedoes. And then all of a sudden, uh, after those new torpedoes, because the Japanese had already perfected this. They had very advanced torpedoes. That's why they were able to uh, sink so many battleships with their aerial torpedoes. But we had really bad uh, torpedo technology. It was quickly rectified, and all of a sudden we went out and we were sinking Japanese freighters left and right because we and other ships because we had uh, much you know much better torpedo technology. Sometimes these things you don't find out until you use them. Remember, we were only in testing and training through the entire 1930s and and through December 1941. The United States not aggressively at war didn't have a chance to try out some of its weapons like for instance Russia and Germany did in the Spanish Civil War. So we really didn't know what we had so much other than what was. Uh, obvious to see until it became tested and then uh, we quickly adapted technologies to uh, to fit a number of different issues again like you said things always uh, happen more rapidly and aggressively in war and in the military well that's true it's a it's a great breeding ground for technology especially when the need is there and the urgency right which is sad i mean it, to, to me it, it seems like you want i understand the the reality of it but uh Man, <laughs> the, the fact that we can't just get there through education is is tough. Um, what would you say to the Geekscape is when when after having done all this research, would uh, as fans uh, beyond the books, beyond your comics, uh, what what are some of the most accurate representations in film or TV of some of the events that? Okay, well, when you come to World War II, I mean, I have my favorites, sure. and. Uh, as as everybody uh, as everybody does, and uh, th- they're numerous. I mean, there were a number of movies uh, made in World War II, starting at the time, and, and actually some of the really good ones uh, did come out in the nineteen forties. Both uh, some documentaries that were made, like John Ford, the famous director, yeah. happened to be on uh, Midway Island when Midway was was attacked. Isn't that insane? That great, that's insane. And, and then a- they used it again in nineteen seventy six in the Midway uh, remake. So I mean, it's it's one of those. Uh, lucky shots but and uh, he uh there was a do- there's a documentary i think on netflix about uh the the five directors who five came back five yes. came back uh, excellent yeah it was good uh and so so midway would have been one of them mm-hmm. yeah um you uh i think you mentioned it before uh one of my favorites and i i happened to worked on it a very little bit was a bridge too far mm-hmm. um just a great uh, piece of cinema and uh really big spectacle and and despite the fact it had a, st- a star-studded cast which is what the critics didn't like uh almost all the stars were very effective in their roles and you know that was it doesn't matter if they're great stars and you put them all together if they're really incredibly effective 
the one uh, the one exception to that would be uh, Ryan O'Neill, right? As uh, as Gavin, General Gavin, and I, I heard a good friend, a historian of uh, who was uh, up. In, he lives up in uh, Massachusetts, and he, he had been Gavin's neighbor, the real Brigadier General Gavin, uh, for a number of years. And he says, "I have to ask you, what did you think of the movie?" He says, the "Movie was incredible." He said, "I wish he hadn't." Cast that damn Ryan O'Neill as me, you know. Oh no, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, but other than that, I mean, it was really, it was really effective. Um, I give Ryan O'Neill a lot of credit because he's yeah. my, he's in my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. Yeah, Barry Lyndon. I think that's true. It's, I mean, yeah. Ryan O'Neill's amazing. And I think movie. Barry. Yeah, I think uh, Kubrick can probably do anything with anybody. But uh, yeah, it's like Barry yeah. Lyndon is my favorite yeah. Kubrick film, and uh, and he's. I mean, he's awesome in that movie. Yeah. And, um, Bridge too far, yeah. not so much. Yeah, you know what? You win some, you lose <laughs> exactly. some. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, more recently, of course, uh, love Saving Private Ryan. And what a story. Uh, set against a great background. Uh, incredible. <clears throat> small story within a big story. These always make great war movies when you have a, a small mm-hmm. story within a big story. Um, naturally, you know, the Band of Brothers, the Pacific, uh, very ambitious, uh, well done. The only thing about the Pacific that uh, I... I did a review of it recently for uh, one of the World War II magazines. I mentioned uh, a lot of people don't pick up on the fact that it was built as the Pacific season one. Mm. In other words, I think there was supposed to be more, right. which is a shame because they never got to a lot of the other things that were going on in the Pacific. They concentrated just, of course, on the first Marine division and uh, you know, characters within that. So there's, it's a lot bigger story. There's a lot more potential to do more if anybody can ever get back to it. Uh, going back in time, I have to say two very unusual films that, that I love for different reasons. Um, I love Otto Preminger's The Victors. It's a very anti-war war film, but set, you know, set in a, obviously in a, in a very uh, much of a uh, tension-filled uh, part of the uh, war in Europe. And, uh, but it's just interesting, I think, because of, uh, again, his use of characters and the story and so on. And then another one I, I could watch... It, probably every day until the day I die, and, okay. and, I, and I'd be a happy guy. The wackiest ship in the army. What is that? Oh my goodness! Have you ever seen it? It's Jack like Lemmon. It's like McHale's Navy. Oh, it's, it, it's, <laughs> a, it's a more sophisticated McHale's Navy. Right. In fact, it, it's, it's Jack Lemmon in one of his finest roles. It's a comedy where he's um, bec- you know, again takes place in a war in the Pacific, and the part that you don't hear that much about uh, post Guadalcanal Solomon's, and he's given a a sailboat as a spy ship and he's supposed to be picking up coast watchers and getting information. He has a really, uh, crazy crew. Uh, Rick Nelson is, is in it and plays, actually plays very good, very effective part as a, as a young, uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, immature, uh, or just really lost more than immature ensign. And, uh, you know, they go through, it, it goes through all real, again, it's, it's kind of like uh, what I have there, separated by war. It goes through the, the real situation, but with fictional characters. And it's just, and, and there were situations similar, without these exact characters, but a similar situation where you had these, uh, you know, these daring U.S. officers uh, on these assignments. And really, if they had been captured, they would have been shot as spies, but they, they were a necessary part uh, working with the Coast Watchers to find out what the Japanese were doing. So it's it's just a neat story. It's well-written. Lemon is incredible. And I, and I laugh every time I see it. It's really funny. It's from the 60s. I want to see it. Um, my, my father writes narrative uh, fiction against the, the backdrop of World War II. He's, he's fascinating. And then I think in his third book, it was he... he Took it out of World War Two and brought it up to the almost modern day, and, um, and that book's the one that he's he's working to get published now. The first two are published, 
Um, and he was in an event in Santa Fe uh, or Albuquerque with, um, and George R. R. Martin was signing at the table next to him. And just to tell you how, how history can be entertaining <laughs> uh, in and of itself, because a lot of, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, George R. R. Martin will admit that a lot of what we're enjoying with Game of Thrones is just the War of the Roses, right? Um, and these are events that happened. Uh, he told my father this story about being in school as a young writer but studying history, and he had written this story, I believe, about the Prussian War. And um, he had written it, and it was a factual it was narrative for, for the most part, but it was but it took place in the uh, in in this specific engagement, and it, the teacher loved it, and the professor was like, "Hey, you should submit it to a historical magazine." And so he took this narrative piece set in this actual event, and he sent it to this historical magazine, and they wrote back and they said, "Hey, we don't publish stories; we publish articles. We publish factual articles. This is a story," and. Uh, he was discouraged because it was so it recommended to him to do this, and he put it in a shell, he put it in a in a drawer. And uh, a couple years later, um, he found himself needing some money and still trying to establish himself as a writer. And he's like, "What do I have that I can sell?" And he finds this story, this piece of narrative that he'd written, and it had a historical backdrop. And he's like, "What can I add to it <laughs> that'll allow me?" to sell this thing because none of these historical publications are going to take it. Uh, and he worked with the story. He didn't change anything in it. He just added some, he added, he said that he added one specific piece and he sent it off and sure enough, the thing got published. Uh, and everybody's like, well, what did you add? My father's like, what did you add? He said, I added a time traveling dwarf. <laughs> I, I added, that was, that was the, that immediately allowed it to be, something seen so when you look at game of thrones it's something that actually happened in the in the war of roses uh for the most part um and he elaborated on it by adding things like dragons and magic and incest which may i don't know maybe that did happen uh, and and he added these fantastical elements but in its core it's still very much history and um and and i found that to be uh refreshing because our appreciation of history seems like something that we're in short supply of because the damn thing keeps repeating uh, we continue to find ourselves uh, having to relearn the same lessons, and it's painful. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're right about that, and uh, I'll I'll make my sort of uh, my theory about that in a second. But I want, I want to say first, you're you're absolutely right about the the. I think a lot of great writers they have a a, a real uh, a real good sense of history and the human condition, whether they're complete fiction writers or. Or you know, histor- what we might call um, historical fiction, which mm-hmm. there are many good ones, of course. Now, and I want to read your father, of course. Now that you mentioned it, but uh, the uh, you know Stan Lee. I mean, as we all know, you know in his- talking to Stan, he is such an appreciation of the classics. Yeah, he is such an. I mean, Shakespeare and the Greeks. He just knows that stuff, and it's intimidating talking to him because <laughs> it, it's not like he has to recall it at ninety four. 95 he it's on the he he knows it and you can see it embedded in those characters mm-hmm. yeah. the tragedy and the humanity of those characters even though they're they're fantastic at their core they're these human experiences yeah as far as my theory about why don't we learn from history uh 
I don't think we learn from history. I have two thoughts about that. Number one is I, I don't think it is given the, the proper perspective in our sort of STEM-oriented education of the last decade or so. Uh, we really need, I believe, STEM is important, that being science, technology, engineering, math is important to the future of the of the race. But again, if you don't have the human side, if you don't understand where we came from, it's hard to direct that in, in the right way. Uh, so that that's the one thing I think. The other thing is I think is that uh, the people most ignorant of history are the ones who need it the most. And right. I'm not sure whether that's on purpose or, uh, or in other words, they intentionally don't want to know because they, they, they don't want to be accused of making the same mistakes. But it's almost comical how the draft dodgers start the, dra- start the wars. I- exactly. And, you know, ha- and how, uh, you know, how the, the current politicians don't see a, a replication in a, in a situation that's, that's brewing that this, was, this happened this was almost Vietnam. identically before. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they want to just remain ignorant so they can kind of put their own stamp on their policy or whatever it is. It's not a good stamp to have. Not a good stamp. <laughs> it's, it's, not not, a good stamp. it's not a good look. But uh, obviously there's so many things. I, I trace just about everything that, that happens in a, in a modern catastrophic way and uh, to something that happened in the past. In a modern positive way, it, you can find that as well. But I, I think we probably do have I will say we think we have more hope now than perhaps any culture in the past. But that hope is is fleeting unless unless we give it the, the proper care. And only learning from the past will be enable you to properly care for the hope uh, for the future. And right. I don't see that happening nearly enough right now. And so if we survive this, Geeks gave us, just know that the music's going to get really good. <laughs> the, the comic books are going to get really good. Uh, the films are going to get really good, and art and, and art will bounce us back quite a bit because we're going to have a lot of stuff to work through. Um, Geeks gave us a quick shout out, real quick. Um, a, about a year or two ago, I had a group uh, called Womp Stomp Films on the uh, show. They had they were putting together a Friday Thirteenth uh, fan film. And Friday Thirteenth came and went last week, and I just want to let you guys know that the fan film is up. I shared it on Geekscape Forever on Facebook. I also shared it on the Geekscape page on Facebook, and um, it's awesome. It's a, almost an hour long short film, and it's a fan film, and it takes place in the Friday Thirteenth, um, you know, universe. So um, you're not getting a Friday Thirteenth movie yet. So enjoy it, especially because it's Halloween month. I wanted to throw that out real quick before I forgot. I'm trying to get. Uh, the team back on the show because the short film is really cool and you should check it out. And then another note real quick is that I did see Blade Runner um, 2049 and there's a discussion going on right now on the Geekscape Forever uh, Facebook group. You should become a part of it. I know I'm a a week late in seeing it and uh, I think I, I'm not going to spoil it, but I think I concur with a lot of people saying that the movie is incredible. It's also a bit long we probably got the director's cut of the film in theaters, which is pretty cool. We got to see the director's cut in theaters, um, but it's probably hurting the domestic box office of the film because it's three hours long, uh, and uh, as enjoyable as it is, it is long. Uh, Those are my initial thoughts. There's more discussion going on on our Facebook page. Um, Jay, where can people find the books? You said Amazon. Yeah, uh, the digital versions are available uh, in Amazon and iTunes, uh, downloadable, uh, of course, in uh, Google's Google Store, all those places. So if you want to see it digitally, you can go there. Uh, the printed copies are not 
in quite as great a distribution now. We're we're working on that probably when we get the next two, the Midway and the and the Guadalcanal issues done, uh, we'll have a better chance to get it out in uh, more stores. But right now, outside of us uh, military museums and special places like that, probably the best way if you want to get the printed copy. And it's a it's a really good deal because there are only five bucks plus a, a small shipping charge. Just go to World War II Comics with an X. That's World War I I C O M I X dot com, and you can order them and have them sent right to your home. It's probably the best way right now for uh, you ge- you Geekscape listeners <laughs> and uh, out there who are interested in seeing something a little different. No, I I, I enjoyed them. I think they're. I mean, I have a pretty big appetite for this kind of stuff um and every now and then you do you just have to step away from the traditional comics and and although you love the medium you want a different story told in it and i think that at least here in the states we've moved away from that we're slowly moving back to it there's great publishers like image who are diversifying comics they're still working with uh the fantastic for the most part but um it's not necessarily superheroes and every now and then you get like a great crime book or a great old hollywood story um, that I love. Um, so my appetite has been stratifying as, uh, as the, as I need more tastes. Um, Jay, thanks for coming on the show. It's so much fun talking to you. I could talk to you forever because <laughs> I'm really fascinated by all this stuff and I hope the audience is too. Um, dude, thanks for making these books. I think you're, what you're doing is, 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 uh, is great. Let's try and get these books in kids' hands. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. I, I will say one last thing to Geekscapers is that we love feedback, good or bad. Uh, you can go onto our Facebook page or uh, hook us up on Twitter or the website or anything. And, and if you do see them or you have comments or ideas, love to hear because I'm an audience guy. Again, I'm a communicator and I'm only as good as uh, the applause that I get back. And I'll, I'll, I'll improve as I, as I get good ideas. And I do get good ideas. So I encourage people to Stay in touch with us and stay in touch with Jonathan, and we'll, we'll keep trying to turn them out for you. In those Facebook pages and, and Twitter handles would be World War II Comics with an X? That's right. Okay, so search for that. The X is important, Geekscapists, and uh, Jay would love to hear from you. Um, I'm excited for the next two issues. Um, Geekscapists, you can always find us at geekscape.net. Uh, we have a we have Facebook pages. We have Facebook pages at Geekscape, and Geekscape Forever is our group where we have a lot of discussions. And uh, you can post and do whatever you want to, to mix things up with the rest of the Geekscapists. We've also got that Twitter and uh, an Instagram, uh, Geekscape Forever. Uh, we've been here for a while, Geekscapists. We're part of history now. <laughs> a week ago, somebody called us an institution. It was like, Jonathan, you've created an institution. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> I just like doing it. This is a lot of fun. And I want to happily report that since our move to Westwood 1, our subscription numbers have doubled, which is pretty awesome. And uh, nothing encourages me more than the fact that uh, you all are enjoying the show, you're sharing the show, and that the show is growing. That um, that was something I looked into over the weekend, and it just really, really, really made my day um, to know that you are all enjoying the show and sharing the show. So please continue to do it. Uh, leave us a review on um, iTunes or wherever you uh, get the show. And Tell it to your friends because the main thing is we want to inspire and educate and entertain you guys. That is what we do here, and we want to do it in the language of everything that we love with movies, video games, comic books, and TV and pop culture. We're going to do it even more so in two weeks at 
Stan Lee's LA Comic Con. That's at the convention center uh, October 27th through 29th. You don't want to miss it, folks. If you have a chance to go, definitely go. If you can maybe go for a day, go for a day. We'll be right there. We have the Geekscape booth. We're going to have uh, T-shirts and a lot of fun stuff. We'll be having giveaways. And there's tons of stuff going on on the main stage. Man, they announced The Rock. The Rock is going to be there. That's insane. I hope The Rock isn't there during the Geekscape panel. Well, then nobody's going to be in my Geekscape panel. I guess they will because I've got uh, uh, Jerry Dugan as my guest. And we're going to be talking Deadpool and Guardians of the Galaxy and some of the other comics he's writing. So I'm so stoked for that. And maybe I'll add another surprise or two to the panel. And you'll hear about that next week on another Geekscape coming at you. Geekscape is thank you so much. Over and out. We love you. Geekscape forever. Bye.